Those of you who might not know me, my name is Jonathan. It's a great privilege for me to share the word with you. And we're busy with a series called Dear Church. And I shared a little bit earlier on with uh, Marnas and Dion. Uh, there's a part of me that's really sad because I loved preaching on this series. I loved spending time in this series. Personally, it's one of the series that's really challenged me as a preacher, but not just as a preacher. It challenged me as a person to be in God's word, to value God's word, and to really Look at what Jesus wants to say to me through his word. What we did in this series, we looked at the, the seven churches found in the book of Revelation. And we looked at what Jesus said to every church. Now, hopefully you were here for all seven churches and then you'll get the full picture tonight. If you weren't, I want to really encourage you to go and listen to the podcast. But to every church, Jesus had a specific message in these churches found in the region of Turkey, modern-day Turkey. And, and our purpose after studying these churches, these letters to these churches, was to not just look at what Jesus was saying to the churches, but to allow God to speak to us through His Word to this church. Say, so God, what you said to those churches, what are you saying to us today? Jesus was writing, writing a letter, Dear Church, what was Jesus writing to us today? And we looked at all these different churches, and tonight we're going to look at the last church that we haven't looked at yet, and that's the church of Philadelphia. Okay, so if you have your Bible with you, um, you can turn to Revelations 3. Now, to give us a little bit of context to this church, of all the churches, all seven churches, this is the church that we know the least of. Very little is known about the church in Philadelphia. It seems as if this was a smallish church, as if this church didn't have a lot of significance and power, and you will see it as we study this later. But a little bit more about the city of Philadelphia. Um, Philadelphia means brotherly love, and it was founded by King, uh, what's his name, Attalus, King Attalus II, and he founded the city, and he named it Brotherly Love in honor of the love that he had for his brother. So the city was founded out of uh, not just respect for a brother, but it was just like an honoring place of love for his brother. But since the city was founded, it had numerous name changes. It changed from Philadelphia to Decapolis, then to Flavia, which I think is such a weird name. Can you imagine telling someone, I'm, came, I'm coming from the city that's called Flor. Um, if you're Afrikaans, you'll understand. Then from Flavia, it went to New Caesarea. After the Caesar at that time helped the city financially, then they named it after the Caesar, New Caesarea. And then eventually Jesus moved back to Philadelphia. Can you imagine living in a city that's constantly changing its name? Some of us can. <laughs> Some of us are coming from some places where you go, What's the name again? What's the new name? What's the old name? They've gone through a couple of name changes. Eventually they settled 
back on Philadelphia. But they also had a specific nickname. They were called Little Athens. So not only did they have this confusion about what's the name of the city, they also had a nickname, Little Athens. And they were named Little Athens because they were a small representation or a similar representation as to what was happening in Athens, the city of Athens. Now the city of Athens was known for all the different gods that was being worshipped in the city. So Philadelphia, again, similarly, had many gods and different idols similar to Athens that was worshipped in the city. Philadelphia, little Athens. And the last thing that I believe is important for us to know about this city before we look at what Jesus said to them, because of its location, the city was in constant danger of earthquakes. Just where they were situated, it was familiar, there was constant earthquakes. And in 17 AD, there was quite a significant earthquake, a massive earthquake that destroyed 10 cities in that region. Now get this picture. It's, it's like modern day Turkey. It's an earthquake that shakes the whole nation. And one of the cities that's been destroyed through this earthquake was the city of Philadelphia. And there were constant tremors in the city. They were just living in a place where there was constant earthquakes and tremors, so much so that the people lived in fear. And many of the people of Philadelphia preferred not actually staying inside the city because it was unsafe. They preferred to stay outside of the city, to encamp around the city because of the earthquakes. So here you have this city, it's got constant name changes, it's full of worship, idolatry, different gods, different pagan beliefs, plagued by earthquakes, people are fearful, no, there's no stability, you can imagine just name changes, earthquakes, there's just no stability, and in this environment, there's a church, the Church of Philadelphia. And this is what Jesus said to them, verse 7. Before we do that, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as uh, we submit ourselves unto your word this evening, I pray that you would not just, that we would not just read the words that you spoke to this church in Philadelphia, but that you would enlighten our hearts and our minds by your spirit for what you want to say to us this evening. Lord, we can submit ourselves under the authority of your word, and Lord, submit myself under the guidance of your spirit. May you lead us in all truth. And Lord, may your perfect will be done. May you protect us against any lies and any distractions from what you want to do. And Lord, ultimately, we want to see you glorified, and that your word will be true in our lives. So Lord, would you speak to us? We thank you for your word, and we thank you for this opportunity. Amen. Amen. So, Revelation 3, verse 7. This is what Jesus said to the church in Philadelphia. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. 
We're just going to pause there for a moment. If you've been part of this series, you would hear a familiar tone, a familiar reminder that we have to look at how Jesus introduces himself to the churches. With every church, Jesus introduced himself in a different way, and every time it's something significant, something specifically that that church needed to hear. So if we pause here and we look at how does Jesus introduce himself to this church? Now remember, revelation is a revelation of the glorified Christ. It's not that this church didn't know Jesus, but the revelation is written about the glorified Christ. So this is the glorified Christ that introduces himself to this church. And what does he say? He says, he is holy. First thing that you need to know about me, church, is I am holy. This is the distinctive attribute of God, meaning there's nothing like me. I'm absolutely pure, perfect, I'm set apart, I'm holy, holy in motive and holy in character. Then Jesus goes on and say, and true. I'm full of truth. I cannot lie. I keep my word. I'm faithful and trustworthy at all times and in every way. I'm holy and I'm trustworthy. And then Jesus says, who holds the key of David. Now this is interesting. This is a direct reference to an Old Testament prophecy. Now, if you have your Bible with you, you can just stay open in Revelation. But we're going to quickly jump, because this is significant what Jesus is saying. We're going to jump back to Isaiah 22. Now, in Isaiah 22, we find this prophecy. And I'm going to read it for us. You can follow me on the screen. And then I'm going to explain what is happening in Isaiah. Isaiah 22, verse 22. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. This is what Jesus is referencing. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. Now, this prophecy of Isaiah was about um, Eliakim, who would replace Shepna as a sort of gatekeeper for the kingdom, the Judean kingdom. So this was a prophecy that there would be a replacement of the gatekeeper. Eliakim would be the new steward of the king. He would replace Shepna. And this Eliakim would have the power to control who enters the kingdom. He would act as the steward of the king, which means he had the authority to decide who can enter the presence of the king and who cannot. He had the key of David. Now, this was a prophecy for that time, but it was also a prophecy that alluded to the Messiah. That one day the Messiah that will come from the house of David, will have the key of David, and he will have the authority to allow whoever enters into the kingdom of God. So when Jesus says to this church, I'm the one who has the key of David, when Jesus is saying, I have the authority, I am the Messiah, I am the one that has the power to allow you into the presence of God. I hold the key to the kingdom of God. And then he says, I'm the one who opens and shuts doors. 
Now, whenever we speak about keys and doors being opened and locked, it speaks about power and authority. Jesus is saying to this church, not only do I have the authority and the power for the keys of the kingdom, I'm also sovereign and that I can decide which doors I open, which doors I close. Four things that Jesus says to this church about himself. Different than how he revealed himself to other churches. So Jesus is revealing himself to this church as the holy, trustworthy, all-powerful, the one who has all authority and the one who is sovereign, the sovereign God, speaking to this church. To this seemingly insignificant and weak church. What does this sovereign, holy, and powerful God say say to this weak church? I know you. And I'm the one that's opening doors and closing doors. I'm with you. I don't know about you, but this should encourage us greatly. Because no matter how weak or little, insignificant, or far from God, you feel tonight the all-powerful, almighty, holy, trustworthy, and sovereign God says, I know you, and I'm with you. Regardless of how small you might feel and be in your own eyes, God says, in my might and glory, I know you, and I'm with you. Those of you who are going into new directions, those of you who are writing exams and facing certain challenges, what a great comfort to know that the sovereign, holy God says, I know you. I know what you're going through. And I'm with you. And this is what this all-powerful, sovereign God says to this church. He speaks now from a place of power and authority. And he says to them, I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to this church. I don't know who of you were here when we spoke about the church of Sardis, but this letter was, or these letters were read to every church in a specific order. And to the church of Sardis was just before the church of Philadelphia. Now the church of Sardis, if you remember correctly, that's the church that received the harshest rebuke from Jesus. That's the church that Jesus says, you think you are great, you think you are alive, but you are dead. And what was significant about the letter towards Sardis 
Jesus had nothing good to say about that church. Now, I'm imagining being in Philadelphia, knowing that our church is not doing great. We, in our eyes, we're, we're struggling. And now I hear this letter to Sardis, and I know we're next. <laughs> and then this letter starts. And Jesus says, I'm all-powerful, I'm sovereign, I'm quaking in my boots. And then Jesus has nothing bad to say about this church. This is the one church where Jesus has no rebuke, no correction, only encouragement and promise. I don't know about you, but once this letter is done, I'll just go, yes, we made it. It's not a competition, but Sardis, we made it. Come on. (laughs) Imagine hearing this, the almighty God says, well done. You think you are little and insignificant, but I'm proud of you guys. Well done. And Jesus only has encouragement and promise for this church. Philadelphia is known as the faithful church. Of the seven, they are the faithful church. And it would suit us well as a church If we want to hear Jesus say, hey, well done, I'm proud of you guys, it will suit us well, not just to learn from the mistakes of some of the other churches, but also to look at what did this church do well? For what were they commended? Why did Jesus go, well done? And there's three specific things that Jesus commends this church for. He says, you have kept my word, you have not denied my name, and you have endured patiently. Three things that the church of Philadelphia did well. You have kept my word. What does it mean? This means this church didn't just listen to the words of Jesus, but they applied Jesus' words to their everyday lives. They lived according to His ways and His standards. It means that they made the words of Jesus their highest authority. I'm reminded of uh, what James wrote. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. This was a church that did what the words of Jesus asked them. They applied the word of God to their lives. It made me think, well, what would it mean for us to keep God's word today? What would it mean for us if we say we're a church that keeps God's word Well, first and foremost, as simple as this might sound, it means you read the Word of God. You you are in the Word of God. And I know this is not the most profound message that you will hear on spiritual insight and pleasing God. It's just simple, read your Bible. But you cannot keep the Word of God if you don't know the Word of God. And sometimes we become overwhelmed with where do I start and what do I do? And I don't understand this part and don't understand that part. You know what? Start somewhere. Start with a scripture. Read it and apply it and see what God does. How do we keep God's word? Well, we read God's word. We study God's word. And then we apply it. I thought about this modern era where we're living in, where we constantly have any form of information in front of us. 
You can listen to the greatest preachers in this world, Wesley Brits, on a podcast. Easy peasy. Don't say yes while I'm preaching. It's, <laughs> it's just go afterwards and give them the high five. It's great if I do it. It's bad if you do it. <laughs> but you could listen to the best preachers in the world. You could listen to the best sermons in the world. You can listen to guys who's not even living anymore to their sermons. You can find it on the internet. There's this constant place where we can listen to the Word of God. You can listen to any podcast about the Word of God. You can come to every church service and listen to the Word of God. But may we not just listen, may we actually apply what we listen. Not just feed our souls of information, but say, Lord, what you spoke to me, I'm going to do. That's what it means to keep the Word of God. It means we hold ourselves accountable to the standards of God's Word. Meaning we keep ourselves accountable to the standards of what the Bible says about sexuality. We're not keeping ourselves accountable to what the world says about sexuality and, and whatever goes with that. We're saying, what does the standard of the Bible say about sexuality and purity? That's our measurement. That's our standard where we keep ourselves accountable. We look at what does the Word of God says about the standard of relationships, the standard of how we're good stewards with our finances, and we keep ourselves accountable, not to great financial advisors, not to what the world says about relationships, but to the standard of God's Word. God's Word becomes our measuring stick. We don't measure ourselves based on what we see in the world, based on what's happening. At least my relationship is not that bad as someone else's relationship. And at least while we're dating, we're not doing what that couple is doing. We keep ourselves accountable to the standards of God. We keep the Word of God. It's to live according to His wills and His way that we find in His Word. And ultimately, it means that we obey His Word. We forgive because He asks us to. We live generously because that's what He modeled. We commit to what He said about church. We commit to gathering and coming together because that's what His Word tells us. Not the modern day new evangelist podcast teacher. We gather because He said so. Because He said it's good for you. We share our faith because that was His command. Go out and make disciples. We commit to be a disciple and we commit to make disciples. We apply the Word of God. We keep His word. But then Jesus said to this church, not only did you keep your word, you didn't deny my name. See, in the midst of this pagan worship and cultural pressure and persecution, because they did face persecution, they stayed faithful to God. They did not compromise on their worship. See, they aspired to live holy lives, not perfect lives, but holy lives. Honoring God, even in their imperfection. See, they lived different to their culture. They were counterculture. And ultimately, their lives testi testified 
about what they believed. Their lives looked different. They didn't deny Jesus. Ephesians 4, Paul writes to this church, not to this church, to the church in Ephesus, and he says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. I imagine this church in Philadelphia hearing these words of Jesus and in a moment turning to each other, giving each other a high five. So we are living in a way that is worthy to the calling we've received. Our lives, our lifestyle testifies about God. We didn't deny the name of Jesus. We didn't compromise on who He called us to be. We didn't compromise our worship. We didn't become part of culture. We rose above culture. I thought about how would we deny the name of Jesus today? Because this church faced persecution. And there are many churches in this current world facing persecution. Churches that would suffer just by mentioning the name of Jesus. Churches that would lose people, that would lose family, that would lose opportunities, and in some cases, even lose their lives. It is happening today. But let's be honest, it's not happening to us. And I'm not advocating that someone should start persecuting us. I'm, I'm really thankful. I'm thankful that we can gather like this and worship God and not fear persecution. But our persecution looks a little bit different. See, it's, it's different when you say deny the name of Jesus and you're forced with a decision. I think there's a danger in the modern day church that we deny the name of Jesus without even knowing it. So how does it look for us to deny the name of Jesus? How, do, how does our form of persecution look? I want to suggest tonight that we deny the name of Jesus when we live a life of compromise. When we have double standards because of social pressure. Out of fear of confrontation and rejection, we compromise on what God has called us to. We stay quiet when actually we should say something. We laugh at the jokes that we know we shouldn't laugh. We start to speak the way that the world speaks. We start to value what the world values. We start to look at the things that the world looks at. To act in a way, to act in one way with Christians, with our spiritual family, but to act in a completely different way when we're with non-Christians. When our actions and our words don't match up, I believe we deny the name of Jesus. See, our denying of Jesus is not so much about the words that we say. It's about living a life that's inconsistent with the word and character of God. It's not honoring God with our lives. It's when our lives look the same as anybody else's life. There's a scripture in Revelations that says, They overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. There's nothing that Satan can do about the blood of the Lamb. It is done. It's done on the cross. There's nothing that the devil can do about the blood of the Lamb. But he can steal your testimony. 
And I feel as a modern day church, that's one of the things that we have to guard and fight for is our testimony. That we'll be able to go through the way that we live. There's a God that deserves more. There's a God that's greater. That the world will look at us and go, there's something different in that person's life. But if we lose our testimony, we lose the power of our witness. This church did not deny the name of Jesus in the midst of persecution, in the midst of social pressure, and in the midst of rejection. They lived differently. And then Jesus commends them, and he says, you have endured patiently. See, even though you face this rejection and persecution, they stayed faithful. They endured. They didn't give up. And I thought about this, and I thought about an endurance race. Now, just for clarity, I've never done an endurance race. Okay. So I'm speaking on second-hand experience. What I've heard. Anybody done an endurance race? Oh, wow. Okay. Well done. Really. I was just thinking about it and I got tired. But thinking about endurance, you, you, won't, you won't hear someone say to a sprinter, well done for enduring. You just don't hear it. Well done in that sprint. You really endured till the end. That 10 seconds must have been tough. Endurance requires time. It requires, you would say to someone who ran a marathon, who did an endurance race, well done for enduring. Because enduring means that you've overcome many obstacles and challenges and you've endured. I imagine doing this enduring race that there, there were so much challenges and obstacles that you would face that there's enough opportunities to get discouraged and tired and to give up. Walking with Jesus is an endurance, it's not a sprint. And there's enough opportunities for us to get discouraged, tired, give up. But this church endured. What does it mean for us? It means to trust God no matter what. To hold on to His promises even when you cannot see breakthrough. It's to choose to worship Him even though... We might not feel like worshiping. It's worshiping Jesus through the storms of life. It's even when I cannot understand or see the will of God in my circumstances to still choose to say, God, even though I don't understand and see your will, I will choose to follow you. It's when we face the difficult why questions. Why is this happening to me? Why is this part of my life? Why am I facing this and why is God allowing this? It's in those difficult moments to still say, God, you are sovereign. And even though I don't understand, your ways are not my ways. I trust you. It's what it means to endure. This church kept the word of God. They did not deny the name of Jesus. And they endured patiently. And therefore, Jesus responds in a very specific way to them. Jesus says, because you've done this, I will. And this letter is full of I will statements. There's seven things that Jesus says, I will do. I will promise to do the following things. And this is what we'll see in this letter. Firstly, Jesus says, 
I will make those who persecuted you, I will make them come and fall down at your feet. Now think about this. They've been persecuted. So what's Jesus saying? They will come and fall down at your feet. I will vindicate you in front of those that persecuted you. Jesus is saying to this church, justice belongs to me. And I will justify you in front of your enemies. I will vindicate you. I will lift you up. But then he goes on to say, and they will acknowledge that I have loved you. Now think about this phrase. What would God have to do that their enemies would acknowledge that he loves them? Now, depending what your view on God, if you think God is a manipulative God, you would maybe have this picture that God would force this enemies, force this people that's been persecuting them to acknowledge that the others, the church is loved. But that's not the God that I serve. That's not the God that I see in the Bible. I believe God is saying something much more significant to this church. I believe in this moment when God says, others will see that I loved you. What God is saying to this church is, hold on and watch me now. I'm going to do something that's so significant in your life. I'm going to pour out my love on you in such a way that others will have to go, they are loved. I'm going to expose my love in such a way to this church that even those who persecuted you would have to go, there's something different. There's a favor and a grace and a peace and a protection. They must be loved. God says, your enemies will acknowledge that I love you, what God is saying to this church. Watch me now. I'm going to just lavish you with my love. It's Valentine's month. And I'm going to do it in such a way, even those who don't believe will acknowledge that I love you. And Jesus goes on and says, I will keep you from the hour of trial. There's many disputes about what does it mean. Does Jesus say he will take them through trial and protect them? Does Jesus say when there's trials, I will take you out of the trials? Or even some believe that this is a reference to the rapture. Before the great tribulation, Jesus will take them out of the world. We don't know. And it would be not wise of us to speculate on what this means. But what we can hold on to, Jesus says, because you love me, you kept my word, you've endured, I will protect you. We can know as a church that if we hold on to Jesus, God says, I will protect you in the time of tribulation. Jesus goes on and says, I will make you in the pillar, a pillar in the temple of God. I will make you strong. I will bring stability. And then Jesus says, I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem and also write on them my new name. So Jesus is speaking about identity. He's saying, I'm going to do something new about identity in your life. And I thought about, how can we explain this in a better way that we understand? Now, if you think about our identification card, think of an ID card or a passport or anything that gives your identity. Your name says who you are. Your surname says it defines from which family you're from, which family you belong to. And your citizenship 
says where you belong. Jesus says, I'm going to give you the name of my father. But Jesus is saying, you're going to be adopted. You're going to become sons and daughters of God. The name of a city, the new Jerusalem. I'm giving you a new home, a new citizenship. You belong not of this world. You are not from this world. You belong to heaven. And nothing will take that away. And because you belong to heaven, there's a new purpose on your life. You don't live for this world. You live for your real home. And then he says, I will write my name on you. See, when Jesus says to this church, you will be defined, not by what you do, but who I am. Because my name will stand over you. So when people look at you, they don't see sinful Jonathan, sinful Said, sinful whoever. They see the blood of Jesus. It cleanses us. They see a justified son of God. When Jesus says, I give you a new name, a new place, and a new family, Jesus is saying, I am defining where you belong. I am defining to whom you belong. And I am defining who you are. Give you a new identity. And then Jesus gives this one warning. Verse 11. I am coming soon. I'm coming soon. Now to the other churches, this was bad news. Jesus said, I'm coming soon, change quickly. To this church, it was an encouragement. Jesus is coming back. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. Jesus is saying, I'm returning. I'm returning for my bride. Hold on. Do not slack. Stay faithful. Friends, do we live with a mindset that Jesus is coming back? Do we enter every day with the mindset, Jesus will return to this earth? And when he does, he will judge in righteousness. Jesus is coming back. Hold on. I'm coming soon. How would you live differently if you believe Jesus is coming back soon? Hold on. To conclude this evening, how do, we, how do we apply this letter to our lives? How do we live from this letter? What do we learn from this letter apart from the obvious? Keep the words of God. Do not deny His name. And stay faithful. I believe there's an overarching theme in this letter to this church of strength and weakness. To this church that seems weak, Jesus reveals Himself in great strength. To this church that goes through numerous name changes, the city that goes through a lack of identity, Jesus said, I will solidify identity. In the city where there's constant earthquakes and instability, Jesus says, I will make you strong as a pillar. I will bring stability. This church had to humble themselves, die to themselves, lay down their own will, their own understanding, their own name. They had to really become less 
And therefore Jesus vindicates them. He protects them. And he assures them of eternal life. See, to not deny the name of Jesus means we make ourselves vulnerable for rejection and persecution. And Jesus said, because you made yourself vulnerable, I will protect you. See, there's something about the greatness of God that is discovered in our weaknesses. When we become less, He becomes greater. John 3 verse 30 says, He must become greater and I must become less. When I say we should embrace our weaknesses, what I'm not saying this evening is that we should suffer and that we should search for difficulty and we should search for persecution, that we should give away authority, that we should be walkovers, that we should be passive, that we should be poor, poor or powerless. What I am suggesting is that like the church in Philadelphia, we go to great extents to become less so that God can become more in our lives. And we embrace becoming less by keeping the words of Jesus, by living differently, not denying His name, and by patiently enduring, making ourselves vulnerable, humbling ourselves, and dying to ourselves so that God can become greater. We do this because Jesus is coming back. And when He comes back, may He find us as a faithful church. I thought about you guys who's in a season of your life where you're building a name, starting a career, deciding what you're going to study. You're in that phase where all that you hear is be the best that you can be. Build your life, build your name. I want to encourage us, may we not build our own names. But may we become strong enough to carry the name of Jesus. Wherever God places us. But that's the only name worth building. And when Jesus comes back, we will find us faithful building His name, not our own names. Philadelphia was seen as a weak and little church. But Jesus said, well done. You built my name. Can you decide to become less so that Jesus can become more through your life? I want to end this evening by praying into two areas. Maybe you're sitting here and, and, and you're thinking, I've not been keeping the word of God. I've been denying his name. I've been living for my own standards, my own will. I've not endured patiently. And tonight's an evening. There's a moment where you can go, God, I'm sorry. I want you to find me faithful. I want you to be able to save my life. Well done. It's an opportunity for you just to repent and say, God, would you help me? to keep your word, to live according to your word, to live in a way that honors you. Would you help me to endure? If that's you, I want to pray for you. But there's also a group of people that I want to pray for tonight, that the words, Jesus is coming back, is not encouraging, it scares you. Because you know 
that when that moment comes, you will not be found faithful. Tonight is not a rebuke or a way of scaring you into heaven. It's an invitation. Can you commit to say, Jesus, I want to build your name. I want to know you. I want to pray for those two groups of people. So I want to start off by saying, if you know that your walk with God is not right, you don't know this sovereign, powerful Jesus, and you want to say tonight, God, I choose you. Would you raise your hand? And Lord, I pray for us as a church that we'll not just be hearers of your words, but that we'll be doers. May you strengthen us so that you may find us to be faithful when you return. Jesus, we're eagerly waiting for you. May your kingdom come and your will be done in our lives. You're welcome to sit down and all of us say, Amen. Amen. Thank you.